0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special SWW interview uh, segment. I am here with Ben from Cliff Games, developer of Rifle Storm. How are you doing?
1: I am doing great. How are you?
0: You know, I am, all things considered, doing pretty well. I feel like like that's the new preface, right? Everybody, like, how are you doing? And you're like, you know, I want to say not great, but all things considered, like, I am fully vaccinated. I, you know, live in an area that's not under a huge outbreak so we can do stuff. And the, the rules around some of that stuff is being relaxed. So... Normal C is returning, so I guess all things considered, pretty good. Um, yeah, so we're obviously here to talk about Rifle Storm. And first things first, I want to ask because my, I'm curious if you'll get to this. My first impression of this game is very, uh, I have one thing in mind, but what did you, like, what are your inspirations? What did you draw from to make Rifle Storm?
2: Um, so it's, it's kind of a long story. Um, the first, um, this started actually back in like 2009, so I made a Flash game. I mean, that's also why it kind of looks a bit like a Flash game, because I did originally do all the art in Flash. Um, the original inspiration was actually from Final Fantasy Tactics. I don't know if you know that game. And, um, it's the same kind of style you have, like, uh, but you have knights and wizards and you move around a board. And uh, you build up, build up a cool, uh, I guess, team, and you end up uh, winning the game. But I, at the same time, I was also playing Call of Duty, uh, which is guns, and it's like a Modern Warfare kind of game. So I figured um, no one's actually put those two and two together, and I thought it would be a cool combination. Um, so I ended up making those games for a few years. And um, uh, since I've been working on this game, I figured uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to build, Um and I, I eventually said, oh, I wanted to redo those Flash games of eight years ago, and
0: I just wanted to make a better version put that on Steam. I get um, I get real Into the Breach vibes from this. And I guess that's yeah. just because of, like, that's the most recent well, the, one or yeah, I guess that's the definitely, most popular one.
2: Yeah, that is a recent. I mean, the game does have a lot of inspiration, so one of them would be Into the Breach. Um, while I was working on this game, Into the Breach did come out, and that definitely influenced some of the game, because it's definitely a really well-made game. Um, the UI, the game design. Um, so Into the Breach was definitely a big one. Um, FTL, uh, Fast and Light, which is another game from the same people. And then also Slay the Spire was another game. So as I was working on this game, I, this this game's been in development for... Uh, about four years. I mean, the first year was about prototyping. So as I was developing, new games came out, right? So In the Breach came out at that time, and then Slay the Spire, and I was playing those games, and that definitely influenced what you see today.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that... I guess these... I mean, turn-based strategy games have been around forever, and they always come out, but I feel like there was kind of a... a sur- like the surge and lull... I guess you were, like, you were starting development as a surge happened, and then it kind of started to lull, and then it came back again. Uh, That's gotta be, from somebody creating a project in that style, that's gotta be kind of a, a both uh, disheartening when you see the lull, but also like a, uh, a joyful experience when you see not only more games coming out but them getting the critical recognition and kind of opening I'm not going to say like opening people's eyes cuz as I say these games always come out but getting a uh, a casual audience because I think like you know it's it's the saying what is it it's like a rising tide lifts all ships and so a game like Into the Breach I think helped a lot of these kind of smaller turn based strategy games kind of elevate their position. You know, I'm not sure how you felt when that came out, but from my point of view as a as a consumer, like you started to hear of more not necessarily more in in development, but like people like, oh, did you like Into the Breach here's something else and you're like, oh cool, I'll check that out. And you know, it got it it got people in the door. They opened that door and suddenly there's you know 30 years worth of games to explore.
2: Um yeah Yeah, absolutely I think um I I think the game industry does go through those phases. Uh what typically happens a big hit comes out and then everyone's crazy about that kind of genre. I I think the last one would be like Slick this fire that game came out and now all the new games that are kind of coming out are all you know, deck builders. Uh, Into the Breach has definitely brought back uh, the genre. Um, I, I actually, in fact, um, you know, you're saying maybe, um, you know, this is kind of a lull for, you know, strategy games. I mean, when Into the Breach came out, they actually said the same thing before they released the game. They, they were thinking the same thing, like, oh, you know, turn-based strategy games aren't huge anymore. But once that game came out, I mean, the opposite happened. It kind of brought it back. Um you know i I think the same thing will happen as well when this game comes out right I think people are always just looking for good games, and when good games come out um it creates a big um i don't know not a big rush but you know a big kind of surgece
0: yeah it creates a it creates a buzz around a genre that you know because I feel like everybody has like the comfort the comfort games right it's the the sports games. It's the Call of Duties. It's the Fortnites now. It's like there's always they always have one game that they play, like one or two, uh, right?
2: Yeah, that's typically. Yeah, that's the thing about uh, gamers. Yeah, they they typically uh, you know, find one genre or what kind of, one kind of game they enjoy, uh, which is fine. Uh,
0: yeah, it's it's weird, right? It I guess the problem the blessing and the curse for games is that the the number is so large of games that are coming out whereas like movies right there's there's five movies that release every week so it's kind of the, it's kind of easier to like explore your taste
2: yeah exactly i mean with with games um i think everyone's always looking for good games uh, problem is there are a lot of games and people. If pe- typically when people are trying to find a game that they want to play, they try and find a genre or a game that they already like and try and match it with that. That's why a lot of games when you when you see them on Steam, they they always cr- try and equate them with another game that they might have played. Um, and it's it it can be hard for gamers to try and, to get them to try a new game or a new genre that they might not have played before.
0: So speaking of trying that that new the new game right the new experience the new whatever uh for anyone um does is rifle storm kind of like should we expect when we're playing it in into the breach style of of turn based so- game or are we looking at kind of classic turn based
2: uh so I would say it's more like a modern roguelike game so think into the breach slay um, the spire um the idea yeah so you start a run um so there's six squads to choose from and each squad has its own play style um and then uh you would start a run which would be last maybe an hour and a half around that time and the game is totally uh pers- uh randomly generated um and you start You start at like the checkpoint zone, which is, you know, it's like one region. Uh, And there's, um, you know, you move through the region, just like Slay the Spire or uh, you can think FTL. And as you move around, there's random events and there's random battles. And as you go along, you'll eventually reach the final uh, boss area, which is like the bunker where you've got to go and and defeat, um, secure the bunker. And the whole idea is as you're moving through the regions, um, you need to come up with a strategy. Uh, for your squad, you know, you find items, you upgrade your items, and you'll you'll eventually need to come up on the fly with a winning strategy to to beat the game. Um, that's the whole idea.
0: So you mentioned the squads that there's there's six of them. Are they six? Like, are they preset squads? So like, are we going into like, okay, this one's yeah. got three. Yeah, they're close. all preset. But, okay.
2: Yeah, they're um, yeah they're all preset. Um, there's one option. There's a random option where you can randomly choose, the, you know, from the unlocked squads, or and there's a custom one where you can build your own squad. But the reason I I, I went with a lot of different, um, I played with a lot of different ideas, and I ended up going with preset um, just to make sure because one thing I wanted to make sure was because the game has a lot of different items and kind of combinations. I want to make sure each squad kind of highlighted those I guess unique areas of the game. So each squad is is kind of crafted to kind of give a different, unique experience. If the player could just make their own squad, um, you know, it might not come out as great as I want it to be. But they could also do that on their own if through the custom option.
0: Cool. So, do you have any uh, uh, of creating a custom squad? Do you have do you have a preference? Are you a uh, up close and personal, or are you like a wait and see or are you kind of somewhere in between
2: yeah so this is like it's kind of like a Call of Duty game right? so there are uh, shotguns and sniper rifles and um so uh yeah um I, I would personally uh i can totally make a sniper squad where everyone just has sniper rifles and you just stay really far back um and then there's other squads where um you know you can knives and you can just run up to people from behind um so there definitely are different kind of playstyles you can play with. Um, there's some some squads where you can just throw lots of grenades and just do AOE damage to everyone. And um,
0: that can be fun as well. The old uh, one-man army noob tube from the early Call of Duties. Yeah, exactly. I feel like any game that has that, not necessarily that as a, like, a one-to-one replicant of the oh, here's a super easy way to just piss off everybody in the lobby. But (laughs) any game that's like, oh yeah, your grenades refill just like every other ammo. So if somebody drops an ammo bag, you can just refill your grenades. Any game that has that, I'm just like, you know what? Good on you. You you made the class that everybody's going to hate. And I feel like a game like a like a Call of Duty, right? Like everybody like every personal player had a class that they hated playing against. And that was I, different for yeah, everyone. Yeah, Where I know what
2: you're talking about No.
0: Everybody what? everybody in unison hated the noob tubers. It didn't matter how you played or how another guy played. If somebody broke out the noob tube on the other team, all of your team was gain up on that one guy and just kind of the the uh, I guess the, the natural kind of evolution of okay you're on a team you're matchmaked onto a team but now you are truly a team like your one goal as a team is to kill this guy as many times as you can
2: um, yeah, I I know what you're talking about. I think I know in Call of Duty, you know, they had that noob tube. Well, I think every Call of Duty has a noob tube. <laughs> but I think they did that kind of on purpose as a balanced decision because uh, it's always one of the first items to unlock or that every player starts with. So I think they designed it that way on purpose so beginners can just start, you know, racking up kills and not having to be really good at the game.
0: Yeah, it's just... I, I love it. But that. everyone hates that guy. <laughs> yeah. Everybody Everybody looks at the lobby and he's like, oh, there's a level five about to get a bunch of noob tubes just launching off. And then you got the guy that's prestiged six times, and he still does that. And you're like, you know what? <laughs> like, I understand the level five guy, because he's got nothing else. You've got literally everything to play with. Just figure something else out. But, uh, but yeah, it's... I like that you're like you know just chuck grenades, see what like see what happens. Um, I, I love the idea that you could build a squad kind of around six guys just standing there, lobbing them in. Um, you could. I mean, you know, there's different
2: enemies in the game where it kind of counters that. So eventually, you'll have to, I guess, find something better or um, improve on that. Um, right, so the game, the game's difficulty does evolve over time. So that what you do in the beginning of the game, it won't might not necessarily work later
0: on. Oh. So actually, that gets me into into another question that uh, I had. Where, so this game's randomly generated. Is there like, do you have kind of guidelines for the generation so that it's not just, I'm not going to say impossible to complete but is there sort of a kind of uh, a background balance, maybe messing with the numbers to make it not just feasible to finish, but also enjoyable?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted the game to be playable and enjoyable for everyone. So um, that's why I put in like five difficulties they're kind of like difficulty modifiers so the first difficult uh, i mean there's no difficulty in the beginning so the first time you play each squad it's like the default uh, difficulty level and um it, it's still challenging but once you learn i guess how to play the game and how to uh, build different kind of combos uh the game you can you can definitely win in an hour and a half maybe on your third try at most And then once you beat that, then you can go up a higher level and go to the next difficulty. And it's kind of like a difficulty modifier. It's kind of like Slave Spire. If you know that game, you know there's different ascension levels. It essentially adds one modifier. So once you go to the next level, it adds another modifier, which is like, oh, items are more expensive. And then once you beat that level, there's another one that unlocks, and and they all kind of add together. And eventually once you get to the fifth, that's for the most hardcore people, where they really want to challenge and really push themselves. and, and also, the game does have random events, so as you move around, some random events um, can be punishing. Uh, you know you might lose an item, and you might not necessarily know that, but as you play the game, you'll know what events to look out for which ones to uh, that you are safe to go with um, so so i I think I don't think people will have much trouble playing the game well
0: um so this game's currently in early access. Um... And it's that. Well, it
2: it will be in early access, and hopefully a few uh, sometime this year.
0: Yeah. So I guess yes. It's it's currently listed. I guess that's what I should have said. It's not out out. It's currently listed as an early access game. Um, which it's weird, right? Like you see the early access tag, and I think for a lot of people a lot of the kind of casual Steam user base, if they see early access, they generally think back to, like, for whatever reason, it seems like, like Rust and Daisy are the ones that people go to of, like, this game's forever in early access. Like, it's been in early access for 10 years or something, you know, however long Daisy was in early access for him. Are, uh, and that tag has, I think, soured some people, but in the same breath, there's a lot of, like, as soon as you kind of get over that prejudice of that tag being on a game, there's a lot of amazing stuff out there that is pretty much done. Um, So I guess m- my question is, when this launches in early access, Is it, are we looking at, quote unquote, the full game in terms of like feature complete or, um, are we, is it a, a subsection of the game that is uh, going to be expanded on? I guess, what's your, what's your early access roadmap?
2: Yeah. So when the game launches, it will, um, the core gameplay loop is all there. Um, all the squads are there. I might end up adding more squads. Uh, but what's missing is really, I guess, all the nice to have, uh, I, guess more, I guess, more features and more content. So um, I, I ended up taking out achievements just to be able to get into early access earlier. So I ended up just hiding some non-essential things like statistics. So when you're the run, it kind of keeps track of of all that. I ended up just kind of hiding that for now, hiding achievements. Um, but I mean, the full full game will be the only thing I other thing I had to cut because it was quite a lot of work was the final, I guess re- like bunker region where you do the final battle. I ended up just disabling that. Um, and, you know, there aren't as many random events as I would like. And uh, but everything else is in there and I'm trying to polish up the game as much as I can. And I know you're saying that a lot of people, you know, don't like the early access label. Uh, because of, you know, a few bad apples. That's why I'm really trying to build trust in this. I'm I'm doing a lot of playtesting. I want to make sure the game is polished and not buggy, and that people definitely have, you know, confidence. Because once you lose that, it's really hard to gain, you know, trust back.
0: Yeah, you don't get a second, first impression. It's whatever.
2: And that's why I took so long to develop this game, right? So I I just kept going back to the drawing board, just trying Mm to put in more, I guess make everything better.
0: Yeah, you get the... You gotta have that... You know, you can't just... You can't just spit out like, I hate to say garbage, because there are a lot of people on early access that have, as I say, amazing things. There's also I, a lot of garbage. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, and you only
1: got, really only got one launch on Steam, right? Even if it's in early access, right? So you can't screw that up.
0: Yeah, that's that's gotta be, I guess daunting would be the right word of having that kind of pressure I guess on you to like, when we put the game out, it needs to it needs to work, I mean even it, it hits everyone, right I mean c d project Red is one of the largest developers in the world, and their most recent game was a dumpster fire when it came out for a lot of people and no matter yeah I mean, no matter how they fix it that's still the right cyberpunk twenty seventy seven will always have the 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 feel or I guess the stigma of this game was absolutely broken. For, I mean, for I guess what the now old last gen consoles. Um, yeah, I mean four. that's
2: yeah, that's definitely a change in the industry, right? Because games before they would be they would get to the gold state and be fully tested and then released. But now what happens is the games are released to meet a certain timeline. You know, a certain holiday season or whatever. So they push them out early and they're like, oh, we'll fix it later. Yeah, I know certain games that came out that, you know, week one of launch, they had like a two gigabyte, you know, patch.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's small now. I mean, we talk about. And that's a whole other discussion. of patch sizes getting way too big. I mean, you can look at the, the most recent Call of Duties to realize that. I think they said, what, if you have Black Ops, Modern Warfare, Warzone installed, it will no longer fit on a base PS4.
2: Yeah, I I remember reading that. It's, It's pretty insane.
0: Like, you know, we talk about game sizes, and it's also kind of like, it's fresh in a lot of people's minds because one of the... It wasn't necessarily talked about as, like, a a super selling point, but one of the selling points of the Series X and the PS5 was, like, with this new fast loading, you know, you could potentially offload some of the files onto the cloud, so it would be then internet-dependent. Or you can kind of, you know, you don't need multiple versions of an asset. So, in theory, things could reduce in size, and, you know, they were talking about that and then suddenly Call of Duty comes out and it's 80 gigs. And you're like, yeah, I don't feel like that really, uh, really happened. And, you
1: know.
2: That... 80 gigs sounds small. I-, I heard of another game that was even bigger.
0: Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, what, Destiny 2 at one point was 150. yeah. Hitman, so hitman three, if you have everything, if you have one two like if you did the whole process of transferring stuff over, I think Hitman three is like a hundred and forty gigs or something like that, but it's also three games like it's it's kind of in that way, it's tough to like bash them because you're you've got effectively three games under one launcher, so it's a little easier to swallow. Whereas Call of Duty is one thing, and Destiny 2 was one thing, and you're getting... I mean, I guess Call of Duty is two games with uh, Modern Warfare and uh, Black Ops, and then Warzone is a mode. Um, But the fact that two games in a mode could fill up a launch, PS4 or Xbox One,
2: yeah, it's pretty insane. I mean, I, I heard a lot of... um, a, I mean, from what I think, I think a lot of game companies don't even care about, I guess, reducing the size of their assets, or like their images, because they figured, you know, hard drive space is so cheap now.
1: Yeah. Hard
0: drive space is cheap. Internet caps, not cheap. That's true. Um, So it's great when I find, you know a hundred small games, and I can be like, oh, this thing is 50 megs. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and it turns out to be pretty awesome. And then it's like, oh, Call of Duty wants to pull a patch, and the patch is 5 gigs. Your patch is bigger than some, you know, it's it's just ridiculous. And, you know, so, so it is nice to see... Games like Rifle Rifle Storm, these smaller, not necessarily smaller experiences.
2: Uh, I, I try on. to, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm trying to keep the file size small, but also it is in Unity, and Unity just by itself adds like a hundred megs. Yeah, which doesn't sound like too bad anymore when you said five gigabyte patch, but
0: yeah. So so it's interesting you say that it's it's on Unity. So. Down the road, I'm not asking you to, like, definitively say yes or no, um, with that, with it being built on Unity, is there a possibility that we could see Rifle Storm on phones, tablets, uh, you know, potentially consoles, um,
1: is that, uh, it's, is that so a possibility? Point? Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, that's hard to say i mean that's one reason i went with unity so i always have that option in the future if <clears throat> if i would want um i can't say for sure but um you know i'll consider um, what to do once you know, it gets into early access um uh, it's definitely a possibility though i mean it's all about the reception in early access and just see seeing how people feel about it i definitely design parts of the games you know the ui and everything, so it can be played on a touchscreen and on a tablet and on console. So it could potentially go everywhere.
0: Yeah, and I mean, but we'll
2: see what happens.
0: Yeah, you look at a level, and it's not—it's—it's it's doable to, you know, scroll a little bit on a on an iPad or a tablet or even your phone. You know, or use a stick to move the camera around. Like, you know, the worlds that you have—it's not massive right so you're not getting necessarily it, lost, lost yeah in, the in world. fact
2: yeah i mean in fact i actually reduced the map size i kind of i'll admit it, i kind of copied into the breach in that way because into the breach only has a map of eight, eight by eight i ended up going the same route just so i can fit everything on one screen and if i go to tablets or consoles i can fit everything on one screen I, you know people have to scroll um So even then you won't have to worry about scrolling anymore and just everything will screen.
1: I think it's great.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely I guess it's not it's not necessarily an issue on PC and console to a certain extent. But I definitely feel like for for any game, right, to succeed on mobile devices it needs that. That ability to even if you have to scroll around, like one swipe needs to be able to do it. Like I'm sure there's some psychological study that says like, oh, if you need to two swipe something, like once the user gets past two swipes, they're done. Like Um I guess pulling off of personal experience, like if I have to if I have to scroll through menus more than two or three swipes, I'm just like
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, one one rule in I guess game UX is you don't want it shouldn't take more than two clicks to get anywhere. In a game. Right.
0: Yeah, that's definitely. I feel like that, that's uh, that's a common thing for you know games for you know when when you design uh, a DVD, well, design a DVDs title screen sounds weird cuz not a lot of people use those anymore. Um but when you're when you were designing you know DVD splash screens it was like the the end user needs to have to hit at most three buttons to either start the movie or get to exactly where they were. And that's always the the fun struggle of building things in such a way that you have you're just like start from the beginning just start over whatever that button and then like okay for for a game right like a save selecting a save and then like options i i always felt like ux designers gave up when people got to like the far right, so the options or the, like, the subtitles and stuff, like, <laughs> the settings on the DVD, because they were just, like, there's menus on menus in these things, and everything else is nice and neat. And I don't know, like, I mean, cool. I always
2: just click play
0: yeah. when I had a DVD. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, and I guess, you know, Netflix and streaming kind of killed that that idea because it's, that's, you know there's no longer those menus to go through, it's just title play it either continues from where you
1: were or it starts over and yet, you know, you
0: don't you no longer have those those splash screens and I feel like for it's funny, we were watching, uh uh, what? What's the last Brosnan uh, Bond? We're watching that, and like the menu for that is over the top. You're like, it's a crosshair, and then when you hit select, it's a gunshot, and like it's full like. They took the menu and are like, let's make it a James Bond menu. We need to make sure they know they're watching a Bond movie. I was like, that
2: is uh, just... I'm just. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine how much work that was, and most people won't even care. They just want to Oh,
0: to yeah. I mean, I I felt bad for, you know, I'm sure the intern that had to, or interns, you know, back in the '90s that had to figure out how to do that, and their boss was like, oh, I need that done yesterday. And we want it to look like this and have fluid motion and you know. It's gotta look right. Meanwhile they look at basically every other one and it was just like a it was a highlighted drop shadow and nobody
1: cared. Totally.
0: So yeah. I I'll tell you what though, Ben, I am genuinely like genuinely excited. I was gonna say like ready, but this is still as you say a little bit off, but I'm genuinely excited to see not only how this game is initially received, um, because I feel like from talking to you and, and some of the stuff that I've seen, it is it's gonna have like a good a good following. Like it may not be the biggest game, but uh, you know, a lot of times the biggest games draw in the casuals. So they like play it for two weeks and then they're done. They're out. But
1: yeah, these smaller I mean, games,
0: one th- go ahead. Yeah, yeah, these smaller games they build communities, right? You you play the game and you wanna know all the intricacies and you wanna like then you get on message boards like Reddit or Twitter or whatever Facebook and you put out that you're playing this well then somebody else is playing it you connect and you grow a community through that and you know I, yeah absolutely it'll be fun yeah, so, i mean what one
2: yeah one thing was um one reason i went with building this game was because there is actually a, um i wouldn't say huge following, but there is a following for for this uh kind of game because this kind of is a remake of the old flash games i made like years ago and a lot of people that are following me now actually play those old games, which surprise anyone remembers. So I am kind of piggybacking on that. Um, so I, so that that definitely helps.
0: Yeah, you get the uh, the the Twitter DM like, "Hey man, I played the Flash game," and you're like, "Wait, people actually interacted with that?" And you want me to keep doing it? And it's like, oh. Like, that's always a really good feeling. I mean, for, I'm sure for you, it felt the same way. Like, when I, like, the first, I guess, mainstream project that I worked on for, uh, for a short film, um, it got linked to my IMDb, and somebody messaged me, and like, dude, that movie was pretty cool. I was going to say awesome, but they didn't say that. They said it was pretty cool. Um, I don't want to put words in their mouth. And... You know, are you, like, continuing working with this, this company and, you know, this crew? And I was like, oh, somebody, like, actually took the time to find me. Like, I'm not easily findable on the internet, and that's kind of partially I, a reason. I mean, like
2: that has to feel good. That yeah. has to feel great.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm, like... having up fan... Yeah, it's like, I guess this is is the equivalent of what I'm sure editors in Hollywood, like when people would send them letters. Like, you know, and they open their mailbox and it's, you know, oh, insurance offer, spam flyer, bill I need to pay, another bill I need to pay. Oh, who's this? And you open it and read it and you're like, oh. This is, yeah, like that, and you know, I don't know how necessarily you felt, but for me, I was like, you know what, like, that person's awesome, like, I, I, <laughs> I, say, I can tell you, I mean, you know, I was going to say, I, I don't, like, one. you know, I, I was initially going to say, like, I don't really care who the person is, but I kind of do, um, like, if, if the person's a real asshole, like, we'll probably stay away from him, um. But, you know, like, if if they're a nice person, like, they reached out to me. That's more than more than everybody else has done. And, you know, it was, it was like this cool all of a sudden I got a notification from Twitter, like, hey, you have a new DM from somebody. I'm like, okay. Uh, And it was this person that was like, hey, I saw the project that you worked on and found you through your name and a Google search and yeah, you know, so I, I messaged you here, and, you know, thanks. Like, that's all I could really say at the time was, was thanks, because I was I was genuinely taken aback by people. It's that, you know, people always tell you, like, oh, people care about projects you work on. They're just a the silent minority. And then you get, or the silent majority, and then you get the vocal minority that are actually nice. It's, it's generally a very small percentage of the vocal minority are genuinely nice. And you're like, you know what? I did make something, and you feel good about it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can tell you, in you uh, know, around th- th- 2008, you know, to late 2012, this one was making a lot of flash games, and they're all free and all put online. Um, you know, they got uh, millions of plays. You know, I got a lot of fan mail. I actually enjoyed these games. And uh, looking back at them, they were not good at all. Uh, a lot of them were crap, but actually, a lot of people did enjoy them. And they do remember those games. And you do build a following over time. It's at least something
1: I learned. Um, and of course, you get better. You get better as you go along, and it makes it worth it. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, I had one guy. I had one. Guy, I remember one specific email I got. <clears throat> Uh, he said he was an orphan in, like, Russia, and he didn't have a computer or anything in my game at, like, the orphanage, or I think the library or something. And he just said he was really grateful for playing the game. He was really happy with that. And then there was another guy from uh, China. He found, I don't know, my email. He couldn't even speak English. He was using, like, a translator. He was just saying that, oh, he, he was a teacher in China. He just really enjoyed playing my game in class. I'm like, what? You know, you don't really realize how how much you influence other people, right?
1: Yeah the
0: the the one that struck I guess kind of quick quick tell a story and then then wrap this up, but like the first time I got somebody that wasn't from the states or North America that messaged me, it was like they were like the third or fourth person that had messaged me about the first short film that i worked on cuz it it won a couple of awards at small film festivals so it kind of it was getting talked about so people were were watching it and they were like hey this was this was pretty good um you know this this really was like you know, it was a fun experience to watch and like the first person was from germany that messaged me and i was like you know what I can't believe I something that I worked on went international. Like when when you're growing up especially where I grew up in in western Michigan it's kind of like it's a tight-knit community, right? So you expect a lot of like people around you to acknowledge stuff that you do because it's just people see it. But that first time that I got somebody that was like I couldn't Feasibly at the time go to where they were, I was like, man, that is a that's an interesting feeling, and I'm sure like that that's gotta be like you know as you talk about the the Chinese teacher using a translator or the Russian orphan that somehow found your game right like like those are the experiences that um that you remember and stick with you for for the rest of your life and i really hope rifle storm can continue those experiences for you and it was great talking to you ben
1: yeah absolutely it's great talking to you
3: aj all right thank you This episode is partially brought to you by the Humble Choice program. Did you know Humble Bundle has a great monthly subscription service that lets you get a ton of video games every single month? That's right, from plans range from $5 to $20 a month, you get a hold of a bunch of free games they have available to you. And you can use our code down in the description below to go and sign up. It would help our podcast and help you see what great games are available for you this month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of these fun interview episodes of the SWW Show. Hi, Mike. Today, we have all the way from Michigan, ironically closer to me now physically, AJ. AJ, how is it living in that state?
1: Fine. Weather's been a little weird, but it's all right.
3: Ah, uh, and today we have with us a special guest from decently around the world, five hours to our east, which I think puts you in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Neil of is it Eponymous? So I'm kind of butchering that, probably.
4: Uh, yeah, Eponymous. I'll go for Eponymous.
3: Perfect. So, yeah, Neil, you're here, joined us today to talk about why light. Drive to get us started what is twilight drive
4: so twilight drives a, a game that i've been making so i'm a pretty much a solo developer um and this is my first published game um it's a top-down racing game basically so uh, it's kind of novel distinctive feature is that um you attach to the corners you want to uh turn around by using a sort of grappling hook like mechanism so between the corners, you kind of, you know, drive as usual. And then when you hit the corners, um, a lot of them have kind of got these attach points. So you uh, sort of hook onto them and sling your car uh, around the corner.
3: We're, so I think that's what caught my eye about you two was that it was a very interesting mechanically of doing that. And initially I got to ask, how hard has that been during development to like make that just function correctly?
4: Yeah. So originally, um, like that was sort of my core idea to begin with was like, ah, you know, what if you sort of basically attach to the the corners to sling yourself around? Um, And then initially, I didn't actually have kind of much driving physics beyond that. It was kind of like, you know, when I first started out, very simplistic, you just kind of drive in a straight line, you know, turn, there's no sort of drifting or anything like that. Um, So then it was kind of simple. Uh, But then it was a bit too simple, you know, I thought, okay, there's not enough going on here to kind of make it interesting and to sort of have, you know, sufficient skill. Um, So then I sort of added in kind of more of a physics model, which uh, sort of took a a while to kind of iterate uh, and get right. Um, And then I began experimenting a bit more with uh, the grappling mechanism. So there's kind of two different types, really. There's one where um, you sort of firmly attach to the corner and just follow sort of the the radius of the corner round and the other is that you attach just the front of the car and then at that point you tend to be kind of drifting and skidding around the place because like the back end is sliding out so you need to be careful at which point you kind of attach and at which point you you let go um so that added a lot more sort of variety to it and i was much more pleased with it when i hit that point um yeah and i was well i was enjoying developing it so that i feel that's always you know a good sign uh, if you're enjoying the gameplay um yeah so so it's definitely sort of fun to develop, and you know hopefully other people will find it fun as well
0: so I gotta ask with the you mentioned that there's multiple attach points if you're sliding around if you're attaching the front is uh control wise are you like do you have to counter steer it to hold the slide, or are you like kind of just not along for the ride but you know is it kind of just like flinging you
4: yeah that's a good good question um so I, I kind of experimented with both during uh development but in the end yeah you're along for the ride basically so the kind of the key thing is deciding when to attach when to release and as soon as you release you're kind of back under your own control so then you generally have to apply some steering to uh, like you say, counter-steering to kind of correct your drift and, and head off in the right direction. Because in general, obviously when you're attached to the corner, you're going to sort of keep going round and hit the inside wall, you know, on the exit of the corner. So you've got to be careful not to do that and obviously then steer outwards away from the corner to uh, make sure your path is correct and you're heading on to the, the next part of the track.
0: That's a, uh, it, it, you know a lot of these for i guess for me cuz i'm more into driving games in general like a lot of these top down games there's like they all kind of rely on the same gimmick it's normally kind of uh not necessarily arcade but it feels like you're driving on ice a little bit um you know the cars slide around a lot so having this, you know, kind of, like, you have an anchor point, so you're going, that's your, you know, it's a stationary apex. It's not this car that feels like it's out of control all the time while you're trying to drive around. That's that's definitely a, uh, I guess, for me, an, an interesting and a new take on the uh, the top-down driving game.
4: Yeah, and the the top-down view kind of actually came about because of the mechanic. Like, you know, the game itself is 3D, so it's, you know, you could stick the viewpoint if you wanted just behind the car or kind of inside the car. But with this attachment mechanism, it's not going to work if you're just behind the car because you're trying to attach, like, perpendicular to the car, you know, directly off to your side. So if you can't see where the attach point is relative to your car, it's just going to be a really frustrating experience. Um, so kind of, I, I knew it had to be top-down view as soon as I came up with the mechanic because it's the only way that you can actually see where you are, where the attach point is, where the corner is, where you are in re- relation to all that, and actually kind of, you know, be able to to control it decently.
0: Yeah, the- uh, I was just gonna quick say, I feel like this game with that mechanic in it, first-person would just be like motion sickness simulator. Just all yeah. of a sudden, the car's going, whoop!
3: <laughs> yeah, that yeah. would be horrible. I could just imagine... So I imagine that in VR, actually. Well, like, it's kind of like you're driving, driving, driving. Whee!
0: Well, in VR, yeah. it probably wouldn't be that bad, because you can kind of control your sight line. whereas if, if it was a stationary camera and your only view is out the windshield, and... Suddenly the car starts sliding, but the view doesn't um, doesn't change. The oh the shift Need for Speed games do this really well, where your character looked as you were turning. Um, like that helps offset some of that queasy feeling. But yeah, if all of a sudden you're just like flinging around somewhere, that would be that would not be fun.
4: Yeah, and I, I think sometimes you know the gameplay has to determine the the view. I I never really got on with any of the kind of first person platformer games because it just like first person view for kind of working out when you're on the platform where you should jump. It's just too difficult because you need to kind of simultaneously look down at your feet and also look up to see where you're jumping. Like if you don't get the viewpoint right, it just makes for a frustrating experience. In you know, in my view.
3: Yeah, I can I can imagine that. So what I was. I think trying to say before though, what what intrigues me is so my understanding of this is when you're reading your stuff is your whole pitch on this is you have a multitude of tracks that really change the physics of the game why did do do that road I'm kind of curious versus like going down and like changing the cars up themselves so like, i guess it'd be like fun with like oh a sedan type car and then you have a sports car and then you have a jeep well, like was that a thing that crossed your mind kind of during the development of this Or was to you being like we should focus on the environment more so and make this be the constant
4: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, under the hood, really, you've kind of got like a physics model with a bunch of constants that you can twiddle. And as you say, you can either kind of, you know, alter those based on what car you think you're driving, or you can kind of alter them based on what surface you think you're driving on or like a combination of the two. Um, See, I I guess I kind of just ended up, I'm not sure there's a conscious decision as such, but I kind of played around with different surfaces. So like there is a kind of icy surface, there's more of a dirt surface, and then there's um, sort of tarmac. Uh, so that was kind of my variation rather than um, thinking about a different car. Um, but yeah, that would have been quite interesting uh, to do. I mean, that's the sort of classic thing, I guess, in top-down racing games is, yeah, you're like, you know, you're a motorcycle, you're like a sort of, you know, um, closed-wheel racer, you're an open-wheel racer, uh, you're a truck or something, you know, different stuff.
0: Yeah, this is, you know, it. I can, I can pull up any modern game that has a laser scan track. And I can go from Project Cars to to i Racing to Seticor uh a Set of Corsa Competizione to Automobilista and the track is always the same because they basically they all use the same data more or less. So it is down to, you know, as Mike was saying, like changing the car and you know, as you say, the different classes are going to feel different, but having, kind of taking that and inverting it, I think that's a very, like, you're, you're taking a lot of what makes racing games, at least for me, flipping it, on top, flipping it on its head and kind of asking the question, like, why had it been, why had it been the way it was, why not, you know, upside down or in this case, you know, flinging around a pole.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'm not too fussed about kind of realism. I think if you, if you, you know, it's obviously that's one type of game is kind of, you know, the racing simulator where you try and be very, very realistic in how you're driving um, and, you know, the physics model and things. But I think it's, you know, ultimately there's only one reality. So if you're going for realism, you're kind of constraining your design down to the same thing. So if you've got many racing simulators, ultimately they're actually all trying to reach pretty much the same point if all they're concerned with is is realism. Whereas I'm kind of more interested in, you know, what could you do with design if you say, okay, none of this is real, you know, you can handle the car how you like as long as it's kind of consistent and, you know, the player can get to grips with it. Um, and, you know, what can you do with that to make it kind of more interesting and a, a bit different than what's gone before?
0: Yeah, and I mean... As you say, it's, you know... The simulators are going to be a simulation. And I feel like even... I mean, I guess really there's there's very few... Um, there's really very few driving games that aren't simulations anymore, it feels like, that are of a big scale. But a lot of them, I mean, even like Forza Horizon has kind of gone down the the realism route, like, they're pulling a lot of data from... Like
3: Need for Speed is where I was going to go down to that. that I mean,
0: even, even those, I mean, those guys that, you know, a lot of the teams that work on those now are former... Uh, a couple of them are former Bugbear people, and you know, they're trying to... Because I feel like even a casual fan... Right, you give somebody what looks like a real car, and I think this is where your top down helps disassociate this. You give somebody something that looks like a real car and they expect it to drive a certain way. Like they you always have a preconceived notion of like, okay, this is how a car drives. No matter the game, you're like you're kind of expecting you always have an expectation of how the car is going to control. Um, so I think, you know, using your, your physics of the only way you're going to be fast is by attaching yourself to a anchor point by changing that viewpoint to a top down, you can suddenly like that connection breaks of, you no longer expect the car to handle like a real car. So yeah, I think you you hit all the right for me at least the the right points to really be able to explore I guess is the right word, you know, explore what what else is out there. I mean, you know, but the yeah. the market for the market for just like casual racers isn't there anymore you know i think that the team that made dirt five can tell you that like that audience doesn't exist anymore um they either went to forza horizon or they're now playing Fortnite and call of duty um or they went in the opposite direction and are now on acc project cars Two. um racing services like that so yeah i feel like the casual
1: arcade racing fan
0: they now have something to look forward to with twilight drive so
3: yeah Yeah, i was gonna say let's let's i'm kind of curious since we're kind of talking about wow this is like to talk about so it's an indie game you're, you're a solo developer without even devolving into sales numbers to you what would you define this kind of like you to come out of this in a month and some change from now uh of weeks after launch and be like what to you is the threshold of success for a game like this
4: yeah i guess i'm a kind of flexible so you know i'm i'm doing this as a sort of side project um so you know i, I haven't quit my job and gone full-time or anything like that. So I don't need sort of, you know, massive sales to kind of consider it a, a success. I think, you know, especially as a first-time developer, you just want people to play it. You know, you, you obviously you hope that they like it, um, but to some extent it's more about sort of reach than sales, if that makes sense. You know, you just kind of want to get some feedback. You've been working on it, like, you know, on your own. Obviously, I've got a few friends to test it and, you know, things like that. Um, but you just kind of want to see it. Out and about. So, I've had some, um, a couple of people sort of doing some streaming with it. Uh, it's always a bit nerve wracking seeing people, you know, kind of play it for the, the first time. Um, so I've kind of got a few tweaks to make pre release, I think, um, based on what I've been seeing. Um, yeah, and then, then just sort of see what people think, I guess.
1: Yeah, I feel like the.
0: You know you mentioned it's scary to see people out there playing it and uh I was talking to somebody last night and they were like you know you get one first impression, and for i I think a lot of a lot of indie devs their first impressions now that people are seeing of the game are streamers, and you know it's kind of been a a constant through a lot of the interviews that we've done like yeah, we we've got people out there streaming it, you know, kind of seeing the uh the crowd response. Not necessarily like crowdsourcing your QA, but also like in a way crowdsourcing your PR because and I'm curious to hear kind of from your point of view if you've seen um any sort of numbers coming from the streamers, but to me as somebody that my kind of my my preconceived notion of pr goes back to movies and film when i was when i had to do pr for for a couple of shorts and it was you know we didn't we gave it to i guess old school media which i guess a movie is kind of different compared to a game but you know we we gave it to old school media and we weren't going to see anything about that review for months and now you've got pretty much instant feedback from from people that
1: are like they want to. It, it's weird, right? Like a lot of streamers,
0: they don't necessarily care about the game. They want to. It's all about the show, right? So it's you know you're getting instant feedback on is this working? right is it is it able to be enjoyed or is the person having to kind of uh riff off of what you made in order to generate the show and so you know i i'm curious just as a kind of a, a pr solution how has the response from for streamers been like, are you seeing not necessarily sales because the game's not out yet, but, um, are you seeing boosts in wish lists? Are you seeing, you know, things like, I guess, uh, social media engagement, things like that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a definite sort of difference between the two, as you say. So there's, you know, obviously one thing, you know, I'm doing is trying to send it off to a lot of games websites where, you know, to actually get a sort of, um, what might term a a full review, you know. Um, And so that's kind of like, it's more difficult to achieve, I think. You know, you just send out all these emails and you just get nothing back. You know, you sort of like, you know, obviously if you're lucky, someone will take it and look at it, but you generally sort of don't get replies. So you just feel like you're sort of shouting into the, the void, whereas kind of offering keys to streamers, much more of them seem kind of interested to kind of take it up. But as you say, they're not necessarily in it for like, The long haul, like if you know, if I give it to a games website and they're going to review it, I'm going to expect that they're at least going to spend what sort of like an hour or two playing the game, um, you know, before sort of forming their verdict. Whereas something I'm quickly realizing with streamers is you know, they'll play for five or ten minutes, and uh, if it's not really striking a chord, then you know, they'll just move on to the kind of the next game that they you know have a key sitting there for. So you've got to make sure that you kind of are showing what you're about early, and that's one of the things that I'm Contemplating rejigging at the moment, um so you know I've kind of got a few sort of tutorial-style tracks at the beginning, and you then you sort of watch the streamers, and they're kind of like, "Ah, this seems boring because it's just like you know the tutorial." And even though it's like literally, it's like a 25-second track just to explain this kind of principle, they're already like, "Hmm, this isn't really sort of you know chiming with me." So I'm like, "Ah, okay." I thought they'd at least play like you know, like five or ten minutes, will get you to about the sort of second or third, fourth track maybe um to kind of see what it's about. But even that is like, you know, you've got to get them hooked earlier than that. Um to make sure that they kind of are interested and in, in see what the game's about. So I'm thinking of trying to, you know, trim out some of the tutorial bits up front and um or sort of condense them so that they kind of, you know, see much more of what the game's about very early on.
0: Yeah, you've got the uh the A D D generation. Right, like that's that's the attitude that's popular on twitch right now like and other you know youtube streaming and things like that is like it's the it, it's constant stimulation it's you know i personally believe it's why fortnite got so popular is it's all like you're 30 seconds from doing something like no matter where you're at you can be Cutting down a tree, or building a wall, or grabbing a gun—like there's there's always something for you know the the breadcrumb breadcrumb no uh, bread crumb there we go trail I yeah I can't speak right now uh, the bread crumb trail is instead of like a very defined path it's like taking taking it and just scattering it for the pigeons in the park. Like, they can go whatever way they want. You know, that's, that, to me, seems to be the, the kind of common thread between a lot of the popular streamers. But there's also, I mean, there is the audience of, they just want to see, they just want to relax and watch somebody, like, just enjoy whatever they're in and not, as you say, just dump it after thirty seconds and on to you know on to whatever company sent them a key you know in their inbox. So yeah,
1: yeah I think
4: sorry.
0: Oh no I was I was just gonna say that you know from my point of view like if if I were developing something that I wanted to I guess make streamable in the sense of um, getting not necessarily a lot of people playing it in terms of streamers, but getting engagement high. As you say, like your tutorial seems to be where they're falling off. Like maybe just set that as a menu option, right? And just get straight into the game. And, you know, I think, even though they wouldn't necessarily know how to play the game um, or understand the minutiae of the systems. Like that putting tutorials aside seems to be what streamers want, especially because they can just hit a button and just get right into a game instead of oh, I gotta sit through two or three tutorial levels and then i can get going
4: yeah and i, I think it it kind of i think you're right and, and that's something you know that i'm I'm learning hopefully and try to learn quickly um i think it comes from i always sort of get frustrated in the game if it if there's like a mechanic that the game didn't tell me and that i'm supposed to find out maybe by googling it or like reading a wiki um or you know just like so, so some sort of you know hidden moves that haven't really been explained to me so I kind of prefer if it is actually you know upfront like oh you know this sort of does this particular move like this mechanic is here like um to actually have it explained but then I think essentially you know I've learned that I've maybe over egged it slightly so maybe there's a little bit too much teaching uh, and sort of not enough getting into it um to begin with. I think that's something that's tricky as a developer because when you're doing it of course you're personally very invested in it so Right. You're know, like, OK, I'm I'm assuming everyone's here for the duration and like I'm going to structure the perfect experience, assuming that they're all going to kind of reach to the end. So like you things like getting the difficulty curve right and stuff like that. So you concentrate on that and you kind of forget that actually the player doesn't really care. You know, they may not stay for the entire length. And if you haven't hooked them kind of in the first, yeah, you know, sort of little bit of playing it, then they may just kind of give up. So. It's something you have to sort of try and bear in mind as the designer is you've actually got to make sure that it's, you know, sufficiently engaging all the way along. It's like, you know, if you're making a film, for example, you mentioned films earlier, you might sort of have a reasonable expectation if you're releasing at the cinema that most people don't walk out at the cinema. Like maybe if it's really bad, but in general, you're kind of there to watch it. You're there for the duration. So it's the first kind of 10 minutes are a bit slow, it's probably not going to lead to, like, you know, a mass work sort of walkout. But then you think, okay, but now the film's on, like, Netflix, it may well be that if you don't hook them in the first kind of three or four minutes that they'll just click back, you know, and and go and find something else. So it's, you have to sort of be mindful, I guess, of of where your audience are and, you know, whether they're likely to persist or not.
0: Those damn streaming services. (laughs) They've ruined the art form.
3: We we're killing them all, you don't understand this it ends what is true art. We only accept true art or no art. AJ get the blowtorch ready.
0: I mean here here in the States they complain about baseball turning into the three true outcomes. I think media is turning into the three true companies. In their all streaming platforms. <laughs>
3: yep. Uh, and on that note, I think we're gonna get to the tail end of this. So, Neil, if people wanted to go check out the game, where do they wishlist it? How do they do all that fun stuff? Where do they go check it out?
4: Um, Yep. So if you just search on Steam for for Twilight Drive, um, I just pushed the release date back ever so slightly, uh, just two weeks from where it was. So it's coming out now um, mid-June, so 16th of June. Um, But you can wishlist it now, um, and Steam will notify you when it's out um so yeah yeah, it's on steam it's um i think ten dollars if i remember right um or 9.99 um and your sort of appropriate currency conversion um yeah so so check it out there's trailers um screenshots videos and all that kind of stuff on there to to get that sort of a view of what it is
3: perfect well neil thank you for taking time out of your very late evening to talk to us today about Twilight Drive, and we look forward to the release of the game.
4: Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for, for having me on.
3: This podcast was a production of The SWW Show. To learn more, go to the theswwshow.com. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter, at The SWW Show. You can follow me, at Mikey underscore Maroney. You can follow AJ, at Low Seat Remember, new episodes premiere on Friday, 9 a.m. Central Time, on anchor.fm slash sww and podcast services around the globe